0: Today is an exciting day as we worship the Lord and celebrate his resurrection. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 16. That will be our text this morning, verses 1 through 8. Over the past three weeks, we've been looking at a different kind of king. In Mark chapter 10, we saw Jesus as a humble king. Or as a servant king, rather. In Mark chapter 11, we saw Jesus as a humble king. And today, in Mark chapter 16, we see Jesus as a risen king. We see him as the resurrected king. And so in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, I want us to see this morning that Jesus Christ triumphantly overcomes our failing faith. He triumphantly overcomes sin's entrapment and death's curse. By rising from the dead on the third day. We see this in Mark chapter 16 verses 1 through 8. So follow along if you've found your place. When the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices. So that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week. When the sun had risen they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went and fled out of the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Pray with me. Father, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you speak to us. Break down the defenses maybe that we've put up. Give us clarity to understand by your Holy Spirit. The word which you have breathed out. Your living word. And God by your spirit would you speak into our hearts and lives. Lord would you transform our minds. Would you give us eyes to see and. Hearts to love and minds to comprehend the truth and the depth of your word. And Father would you. Guard our minds and our ears, even as Dr. David prayed a few moments ago, helping us to hear and to see, to think upon your word clearly this morning. And now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. (coughs) A professor of a seminary was visiting with an atheist friend of his. The professor asked his friend, what's the bottom line when it comes to Christianity? His friend responded, that's easy, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he quickly added, if the resurrection is true, then a number of other things are true. There are five things he listed off that, made that, that were the result of the truth of the resurrection. So if the resurrection is true, number one, then, then there certainly is a God. Secondly, if there's a God, then Jesus is that God, if the resurrection is true. And thirdly, if the resurrection is true, the Bible then is true because it gives record of who Jesus is. And fourthly, heaven and hell then must be real. And then fifth and finally, then Jesus makes the difference whether you go to one or the other. The professor was surprised that his friend could recount so quickly the implications of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. This is true. Christianity rises or falls on the historical bodily resurrection from the grave. On Jesus' bodily and historical resurrection from the grave. This is the heartbeat of Christianity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, Paul has been giving a defense for what what the significance of the resurrection is, and he comes down to say this in verse 17. Go back and read 1 Corinthians 15 later and see this defense that Paul gives for the resurrection. But hear what he says in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, speaking to the Christian, the disciple, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. When we're confronted with the truth of the resurrection, We have to account for this truth in our lives. And in fact, a person will have one or three responses when they come into contact with the truth of the resurrection. The first response is to either, it's to just flat out reject the truth of the resurrection as being fiction or fable. The second way we might respond is to simply dismiss the resurrection on account of Jesus as having no relevance for our lives and remaining unconcerned and unmoved by this fact and truth that, yes, Jesus did rise from the grave. And this really is just a little bit more subtle way of rejecting Jesus. But then there's a third way, and the third way is when we come to the truth of the resurrection, we will embrace the truth of Christ's resurrection. If we, in fact, acknowledge that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the grave, then we must take the next step, and we must ask what implication does this truth have my life. One thing is certain, at least for all of us who are gathered here this morning, we all must make a decision regarding the truth of the resurrection. We all must make a decision regarding its relevance into our lives. So what does Mark tell us about the resurrection? Verses one through eight, Mark, Mark's account of Jesus Christ's resurrection is probably not probably it is. It's the most succinct account. In all of the Gospels of the resurrection, I think the account moves in two scenes, and I've laid those scenes out for you on the outline if you're following along from the worship guide that you received when you walked in. Verses 1 through 4, the first scene, scene 1, it's one last tribute. This is what these women are going to the tomb for. They're going to Jesus' tomb for one last tribute to pay their final respects. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Siloam, they bought spices to anoint Jesus. This was the sign of their love and their devotion for Jesus. But what we understand as we read through the narrative, it's that these women are devastated, they're traumatized. They had seen all the offense of Jesus' crucifixion unfold. We see this in verse 40 of chapter 15. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and the younger end of, jo- jo- of Joseph and Salome. What had they been looking on? Well, they had been looking on, as verse 37 says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. They had been looking on through the, as these events of Good Friday transpired from the time of his beating to the time of his being nailed to the cross and stood up in front of everybody on the cross. His humiliation and his Suffering and his death. They had watched it all unfold. Not only that, Jesus' predictions had come true. In Mark chapter 9, verse 30, just to give you a few of the predictions that I'm speaking of. Verses 30 through 32. Jesus is with his disciples. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But look what it says. They did not understand the saying. And were afraid to ask him. In chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, again, we see this prediction of Christ looking forward, foreshadowing what was to come. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, and they will flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. We fast forward just a few chapters to chapter 14. We see in verse 7 this short statement. Jesus speaking about what had just been done to him, being anointed. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And then verse seven, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. And in verse twenty seven of chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it's written I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after, I've raised up, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to Peter, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Verse 31, you don't have it up there, but here's what Peter says emphatically. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. That's the other disciples. Jesus' predictions had come true. Judas, one of his disciples, had also betrayed him. Another disciple named Peter, one of the leaders, Peter denied him three times, just as Jesus said he would. The other disciples also fled Jesus had been unjustly condemned. He had been mocked. He had been beaten, spit on, and crucified. And though verses 1 and 2 reflect these women, their noble, courageous, and compassionate action toward Jesus, it also reflects their failure to comprehend the faith that Jesus had called them to. They're heading to Jesus' tomb, get the picture, expecting to anoint his dead body. Joseph of Arimathea had also failed. But because of his position as a respected member of the council, he had remained in the shadows, most likely as a secret follower of Jesus. In fact, verse 43 of chapter 15 tells us that he was looking for the kingdom of God. And after Jesus' death, it was this respected member of the council who had approached Pilate and asked for jesus 's body in fact he had he had purchased a linen shroud, and he wrapped Jesus and laid him in the tomb verse forty six of chapter fifteen tells us and then in verse forty seven of of mark chapter fifteen, it tells us that these women, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of joseph they were they were looking on and watching as they laid Jesus in the tomb. They knew where Jesus was laid, so in verse three, we find these women along with Salome journeying to The tomb. This wasn't a mistake. They knew where he was. They were journeying to the tomb to pay one last tribute on Sunday morning as the sun had risen. They weren't going to the tomb for a celebration. They were going to mourn. The way Mark narrates verses 3 and 4, it's almost comical until we realize that this is showing how distraught these women were at the death of Jesus, the one whom they had loved and walked with. In all their preparation for anointing the body of Jesus or anointing his face, they had forgotten one major detail, and so they began talking about it in verse 4. Who will roll away the stone for us? As they near the tomb, this is the question that begins being spoken, and and as Jesus' tomb tomb comes into view in verse 4, they're shocked to see that the stone has already been moved. Mark adds a note that the stone was very large. Unlike Matthew, Mark doesn't he doesn't tell us how the stone was supernaturally rolled back. Instead, we're left asking the question. Mark intentionally leaves us asking this question. How was the stone supernaturally moved? Who has rolled the stone back? The reason, however, becomes evident. It wasn't so Jesus could exit the tomb. It was for Jesus's followers so that they could enter the tomb and see that his body wasn't there you're like me, I can identify with these women. I can identify with the the disciples, with Joseph of Arimathea. As I've journeyed through this Lenten season over the last 40 days, I have felt the weight of my own sin deep, deep in my bones. I've encountered the failure of my faith on too many occasions to number, even in these last 40 days. I've suffered in my flesh. I've I've cried out to God in repentance. I've lamented over my sin. And I've I've begged God for a humble heart. I've made my flesh to suffer by not satisfying its appetites. I've failed in this and I've triumphed in it. I've both squandered opportunity and I've made the most of opportunity. I've been sorrowful and I've rejoiced. And in this journey I've learned a thousand times over. My heart is desperately Perhaps I'm more like these women and their failure than I'd like to admit, faithless. Perhaps I'm more like the disciples than I'd like to admit. Betraying, abandoning the Savior. Perhaps I'm more like Joseph of Arimathea than I'd like to admit. Remaining in the shadows and looking for the kingdom of God. During Holy Week, leading up to the resurrection, this day, Resurrection Sunday, scriptures reminded me, scriptures taught me of the betrayal, my own betrayal, my my own sorrow and grief over sin, even coming face to face with death. Scripture has been my tutor and teacher. As all of us, I think the big question we face as we come to Resurrection Sunday is how does the kingdom of God deal with these things how does the kingdom of God deal with justice for the one who's not receiving justice how does the kingdom of God deal with freedom for those who are enslaved how does the kingdom of God deal with giving meaning and purpose to life I think the answer to this question comes in the second scene in verses five through eight we see the angel's announcement In verse 5, we see when, when the women enter the tomb, it says they find a young man sitting on the right side. Mark's description of the angel here is, it's a simple description. He's dressed in a white robe. But he says of the women, they were alarmed. This word alarmed. They were distressed. They were terrified. They were amazed. They were filled with wonder all at the same time. Can you think of a time in your life where you experienced a similar situation, feeling? I can think of one point in my life when I was alarmed in a similar manner. I, I think I, I didn't see an angel. Uh, I, I didn't see his white clothing, and he didn't speak to me. Uh, it was a little bit different. It was It was at the birth of my first child. I was distressed. Listen, I was terrified. I was alarmed. I was filled with wonder and amazement all at the same time. Of course, this alarmed feeling dissipated for each child that we had. By the time we had Lily, I was no longer alarmed. I was just joyful. She's number four. It was at that point, I think, that the grandparents began to get alarmed and experience (laughs) what these women are experiencing. Listen, they were alarmed as they approached the tomb. The stone was rolled away. An angel was sitting there in the tomb. They were alarmed at his supernatural knowledge. They were terrified. They were amazed. They were filled with wonder at his presence. The angel knew why they were there. And when they saw him, the angel said in verse 6, Do not be alarmed. Comforting their concern. You're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. He is risen. He is not here. Come see the place where they laid him. His body is not there. They were alarmed that the linen cloths were still there. But Jesus' body was not. Where was he? Where was Jesus? was his body could it, could it be that those predictions that he made about his suffering also pointed to the predictions he made about his rising how could this be he's not here he's gone their eyes aren't failing them now clearly his body isn't there his body is gone This is an undeniable proof of the resurrection. His body wasn't there. The Romans could not produce it. The Jewish leaders could not produce it. Those in history who have looked cannot produce the body of Jesus. The reason is because Jesus is alive. He is not dead. He is risen. He rose from the grave. Death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. Satan could not beat him. He rose. He triumphed over Satan and sin and the grave. And Jesus Christ is the resurrected king. You see, their eyes of faith had failed Jesus' followers in believing Christ's mission to die for the sins of man and to overcome through the resurrection. Verse 7 tells us, Now the women are are given another opportunity. They had gone to the tomb with one assignment, and now they're leaving the tomb with a new and divine assignment. But go, tell his disciples, the angel says, and Peter, he's going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him, just as I told you, or just as he told you. This refers to Mark chapter 14, verse 28, where Jesus tells his disciples, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. The angel delivers this message and says, Go, he's waiting for you there. Go and see him. I think about this word from the angel to these women. He singles out Peter, the one who is perhaps doubly feeling the weight of his own sin and denial. He had been so strong and so rigid in his declaration. Verse 31 of Mark chapter 14. Remember, he had said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Disciples were feeling overwhelmed. How Peter needed to hear these words of grace, these words of forgiveness, these words of hope, these words of promise. Friend, let me ask you this morning, do you need to hear these words of grace and forgiveness and hope and promise? Do you feel as though your faith has failed? Has sin snared you? Have you been overrun by the assailing circumstances of life? Have you been so long in your current situa- situation that you've become callous to the promptings of God? Callous to the, the hope of the resurrection? Have you, have you run so far in so long that you feel like you're unreachable? Have you been living in sin so long that you don't know how to even turn back and return? Maybe you're like Joseph of Arimathea this morning. Maybe you're looking for the kingdom of God. Maybe you're hiding in the shadows. Friend, listen, this is what Mark set out to prove at the beginning of his gospel. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he boldly asserted the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And at the end of his gospel, just after Jesus' crucifixion in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, the first person that declares Jesus the Son of God, it's not one of his disciples. It's not one of these women. It's a Roman executioner where he looks up and he says, this must have been the Son of God. This foreshadows Jesus' mission in the world as Savior of all peoples. See, the answer to the question, how does the kingdom of God deal with Failure, with sin, with with suffering, with death, with betrayal, with sorrow. It's found in the angel's announcement. He is risen. He is not here. He has risen. You see, Holy Week brings us face to face with the death and crucifixion of Jesus our Savior. But that was Friday, and this is Sunday. You see, the resurrection of Christ, it's the climax of Mark's gospel. The resurrection of Christ, it is the climax of his earthly mission. In the cross of Christ, we're confronted with the reality of our own mortality. Every one of us will face death because we've sinned and we've rebelled against God. And the curse of sin which began with Adam in the garden has been eternally atoned for through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has taken our sin to the grave by nailing it to the cross. He drank the cup of the Father's wrath so that we, all who believe upon Christ's resurrection, might have eternal life. This is what baptism communicates It communicates it to the world. Death and burial of the sinful man and then resurrection to new life of the new man. Jesus Christ, the resurrected King, has triumphed over death. He's alive. And all who are in Christ have this hope. He has triumphed over your sin. He has triumphed over your failing faith. He has triumphed over your betrayal, over your abandonment, over your unbelief. And he stands ready to give new life. In the Gospels, Jesus says no one can come to the kingdom of God, to heaven, unless he's born again. Let me ask you this morning, have you been born again in Christ? Believer, it's time to stop hiding in the shadows. It's time to stop living contrary to what we say we believe. If you truly believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrected king, then what implications does this have for your life? What implication does it have for your living day to day? In verse 8, here's what the women did. They went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. You know, at first this seems like an odd way to end the resurrection account. The women, they they, they run from the tomb afraid and silent. And Mark finishes his gospel this way to show us that here's what happened. These these women were stunned. They were overwhelmed at the resurrection of Christ. Why weren't the disciples the ones who went first to the tomb? Well, they were overwhelmed too. Their failure, their guilt, their shame had pressed them in, into despair and into grief. Maybe that's where some of us are, are this morning. Despair and grief, caught up in shame and guilt feeling the weight of failure on us. Friend, know that, that your life is not so far gone that Jesus can't turn you around, that Jesus can't reach down and pick you up. Know that we have one who stands before the Father in the stead of all believers and says, I have paid for their sin. And he gives us his righteousness And all who believe upon Christ and his resurrection will be saved and will receive eternal life. I I think Mark ends his gospel this way to show us how real Christ's resurrection was for these women. Their reaction to Christ's resurrection forces us to ask a question. What's my reaction to Christ's resurrection? How will I respond to what Christ has done? We know these women didn't remain silent for long. The other gospel accounts tell us they went and they did report the news to the disciples. They reported this good news to them. But I think Mark is uniquely challenging all of Christ's disciples who read his gospel. Just as he challenges these ladies, what will you do with this message of Jesus Christ, the resurrected king? Will you be silent? Or will you proclaim it? Will you remain grieved, sorrowful, full of shame and guilt, hiding in the shadows? Or will you come forward and proclaim this Christ who died to take away our sins and then rose from the grave? This morning, church, I want to challenge us we consider Christ's death and resurrection that we would consider this that Jesus Christ triumphantly overcomes our failing faith he triumphantly overcomes sin's entrapment and he triumphantly overcomes death's curse by rising from the grave on the third day do you believe in this Jesus Christ what are the implications for your life Jesus did, in fact, rise from the grave, and he did. How does this impact your faith, your life, the way that you live day to day? I want to challenge you and leave you with that this morning. What will you do with this message of the hope of the resurrection of Christ? In a moment, we're going to celebrate through the Lord's Supper, the other ordinance, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. We're excited to do that, but before we do, I want to give you an opportunity to respond, perhaps to what the Lord is speaking, challenging you with this morning. Maybe for you, it looks like coming forward and kneeling down at the steps and confessing sin and saying, you know, this is me stepping out of the shadows, taking this first step to identify with Christ, or taking this first step to to leave the shadows and proclaim boldly my faith in Christ. Whatever the case this morning, I want to challenge you to respond To Jesus, to his death, his burial, and resurrection. Let us pray. Father, this morning we come before you, thanking you for your grace in our lives. We thank you, Jesus, for the gift of salvation. We thank you, Jesus, that you triumphantly overcame death and rose from the grave. And now, Lord, we pray that you would be exalted in our midst in this time together. And we ask, Father... We ask that you would work in our hearts and our lives as we celebrate your resurrection. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.